I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. I am so delighted to be here today to talk with Laura Thompson. Laura Thompson is a UK-based writer and the author of Agatha Christie, A Mysterious Life, the definitive Agatha Christie biography. First published in 2007, the biography was updated and reissued in 2020. It was nominated in the U.S. for an Edgar Allan Poe Award, and Laura also won the Somerset Mom Award. Her books include New York Times bestseller, The Six, about the Mitford sisters, which if you are not yet into the Mitford sisters but you're an Agatha Christie fan, I highly recommend that you get into it. Uh, A re-examination of the Lord Lucan case, A Different Class of Murder, and a memoir of her grandmother Violet, The Last Landlady, which is a multiple book of the year in 2018. It's a really lovely tribute to her grandmother, as well as an examination of the cultural importance of London pub life, and I highly recommend it. Her latest, Heiresses, about heiresses through history, such as Mary Davies, Consuela Vanderbilt, and Patty Hearst, just to name a few, is now out in paperback. And she is currently writing an in-development series for television, so we're very glad she could take the time to join us. Welcome, Laura. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And thank you for that gorgeous introduction. Oh my um... gosh, it was so fun to write. There's so much to say. (laughs) <laughs> Amazing! No, it, 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 uh, I, I was almost impressed by myself when you said that. <laughs> That's a very good sign. That's a good sign. No, I, I'm. You know, I mean, we've spoken about this, but I am such a fan of your work, and not just on Agatha Christie, but your other writing as well. And um, and I hope our listeners will not only dive into that biography, but your other work as well. So, well, thank you. Thank you. Lovely. Pleasure. Yeah, thank you for being here. So we are talking today about Agatha Christie. And um, the the idea of the podcast, as we've talked about, is kind of to look at her as as a serious author, as someone who is influential both in terms of crime literature, but also literature in general, commercial fiction, and as a female author. 
and kind of re-examine her legacy a little bit in a way that feels modern and accessible and also really dives into her stories, which are what she's all about, these great plots and stories and characters. Um, so I, I would love it if you would just start a little bit, because you have written this definitive biography, of talking about how you became interested in Agatha Christie. Um, prob- I don't know if the same is for you. Uh, mm. I started reading her as a, as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I was 10. Yeah, mm. same yeah. for you? Mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. Um, my mother was a, a fan, mm-hmm. and I started with Murder on the Links, which yes. I think is quite possibly her worst book. <laughs> but it didn't... <laughs> That was not on the shortlist for tonight, but no. um, it, it didn't matter. I sort of was completely captivated and mm. it, almost like falling in love. I don't know, uh, because I, th- I sort of think of them almost like fairy tales for adults. Yeah, uh, They've got that wonderful rhythm of a fairy tale where, you know, they're building to a sort of climax and this resolution, this almost magical resolution. Yes. Um, but also in the world of, you know, what seemed to me immense sophistication. And, mm. you know, I thought, oh, great. When I grow up, I should be having four course lunches on the Orient Express and that kind of, <laughs> you know. So there's all that world, which I found very captivating, mm. um, even though it's completely, you know, out of date and all that kind of thing. It yeah. still is quite captivating. Yeah. But I still, when I reread them, even now, I still get that sense of, yes. you know, I just reread the, the one we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I, I still felt that captivation and that sense of almost excitement when you feel her start to shift all the, you know, yes. the, the, the movement of the plot and you know it's all starting to fall into place. There must be some must be something very atavistic yeah. in readers that they get pleasure from that. I feel. <laughs> I I agree with you, and I have to say I've reread her book so many times, and I still find them. I'm still surprised. You know, you kind of yeah. you know what the plot is, but there's some part of you that kind of just forgets the conclusion, and is allowed to be surprised by it once again by the twist. And that to me is an incredible skill that she's able to pull that off. Yeah, it is. And I can only think, although she worked very hard, and mm. if you look at her writing notebooks, you can see some books more than others. You can see, you know, yeah. lots of scribbling out. And but something in her was able to do that naturally. Yeah. There was something innate in her that right. could do that. And that is, the, the in, a, in, a, in a weird way, the biggest mystery of all, because no one can really, possibly she herself didn't understand quite why she was able to, to 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 create detective fiction in a in a way that no one else can quite do. You might prefer mm. other people, you might think other people are better writers. Yeah. But no one can quite do that simple geometry that she can do. I agree. Do you, now this is just a random question, but do you think that Ariadne Oliver's Sven Hjertsen, the Finnish um detective, is meant to be Poirot? Well I don't know what you think about this. I I I have a I think Mrs. Oliver, which is a brilliant Oh, creation. she's a great character. She's she's fun, she's great. And uh, but her relationship with that um the man she the, that that vile Laplander or whatever she calls him. Yeah. I almost feel 
that because Agatha, as we know, was very private, she just liked publicity, she kept her, she had a facade that she did not let down. Mm. And I almost feel that Mrs. Oliver is part of that facade. It's like she's pretend, she's offering her readers a version of herself, um, almost to keep them happy. And there are elements of herself in there. And the relationship with Poirot, you know, the sort of mockery of that. But I don't, I feel it's all part of her game, her that game of impersonality that she's playing, if you know what I mean. I do. And I, don't and I, I think that's such a great answer. And I, I'm actually so glad you said that because it, it just adds another layer to how she was presenting herself to readers, which is that she knew they wanted a little bit, so she gave them something to chew on. Yeah, I kind of think that. That's so fascinating. Uh, I love that. Because you, you do get glimpses. Uh, um, you know, I tried it because it's very tempting. Mm. If you write the biography of a writer, it's incredibly tempting to read too much into their, you know, oh, when she used the word and there, did she mean, you know, I mean, chances are they, they, they weren't thinking about anything particularly. They were just trying to get to the end of the book. <laughs> but behind the scenes, there are these sort of glimpses of her, the real woman, particularly you know, we know that her first marriage broke down very traumatically. We know about the 1926 disappearance. We know all about the, what she went through, uh, a, a kind of nervous breakdown, really, an absolute mental health collapse or whatever. Yeah. And you do in some of those novels, some of those novels that are relatively close to that period, you do, I think, that line in Sad Cyprus where the man would have he would have remained happy with with the woman if he hadn't just glimpsed this other woman coming along who you know changed their whole lives and what have it, 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 you you just sometimes think that's a little bit closer to home mm. and particularly in five little pigs which is probably the closest to home of the lot and and, and a book i really thought about choosing for our chat but i didn't but it's, I, do, I do think it's really up there as one of her best. I agree. And, and had you chosen it, we would have had a great chat about that one. But the book you did choose is The Moving Finger, which um, I told you this before, but when you wrote to me that you wanted to choose that book, I squealed out loud because I was so excited to talk about it with you. Um, I was really surprised. Well, that's so great. That's yeah. great. I was really surprised. Do you want to give what you like a brief um, synopsis of, of The Moving Finger? Yes. And you say we're allowed to... We're allowed to spoil... You know, I think at this point, we're a hundred years past the first book. I think if we're... They can't be spoiled anymore. If you haven't read the books, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. We're spoiling them. No, I... (laughs) I, Oh, God, I once gave away the ending of The Solution of Murder on the Orange Express to somebody. Because I thought there's nobody alive who doesn't know what happened. They said, oh, my God, thank you for ruining it for me. Oh, yeah. my God. Well, you know, the great thing believe- about her books is that you can know the ending and still start at the beginning and be totally surprised and enjoy the yeah. ride anyway. So, Exactly. You then get the pleasure of working out how she did it, where are those blue things like, wow, you know. That's so, so the moving finger, I do adore the moving finger. So she wrote it in 1941. It was published uh, two years later. And it, it's, a, it's a marple. Um, and it's set in one of Agatha's 
not St. Mary Mead, not Miss Marple's home village, but in one of her kind of generic villages, although this this Limstock is a is is a village, but it calls itself a town. It, it technically it's a town, um, and it doesn't like being called a village, which is a very English sort of you know stupid distinction that people mind about. Um, and the 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 life of this community, I think, is portrayed with a, a an unparalleled brilliance in Agatha. I really do. I I grew up in a village, and. I kind of recognise that place so much. Of course, it, it's a construct. It's an artistic construct. But the detail that she puts in is, is so alive. And it's a lot of background detail that you don't necessarily notice when you're reading it. But when you're looking for it, you think, oh, God, that's so clever. That's so clever. Um, and and the, the plot is relatively simple. It appears that there's 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 everyone's getting anonymous letters. Everyone's getting poison pen letters, these nasty letters saying, um, I know what you I know about your adultery with the butcher and all this kind of thing. And then somebody, um, Mona Symington, who is the wife of the local solicitor, the very respectable local solicitor, gets one of these poison pen letters accusing her of adultery and it would appear commit suicide. But then someone gets murdered, Her one of her housemates gets murdered, and the whole thing takes on a different complexion. And then quite a long way through, Miss Marple appears. She's kind of called in, and she kind of gets it immediately that the anonymous letters, she turns the whole thing about face. The anonymous letters are a blind, and what's really going on is that someone wanted to kill Mrs. Simington. And, the, and that moment of, of, of she said, well, what would you look at what really happened? What really happened? Mrs. Simington died. And you just think, and it's one of those moments you think, oh, God, I love you. Because it's so simple and direct and, and true. And, you know, someone wanted this not very pleasant woman dead. Who is the most likely person? Her husband. Oh, and what's happened? There's a very gorgeous young governess coming to the house. And the way she portrays that governess. Oh, it's so good. And, but she doesn't appear to be a danger. She doesn't appear to be a danger. Of course, Miss Marple, with her glorious, omniscient wisdom, can see immediately that this girl is a danger and that he is a susceptible man. And she gets it. And of course, we, running behind her, think, oh, yeah, oh, God, yeah. Oh, we know that. We know that situation. The middle-aged man, the young woman, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, um, and it is just the most beautiful. It's the most, the original title of that book was Misdirection. And I think it's her finest, finest piece of misdirection. Um, a terrible title, but, um, it, it, I, I do think it's the best bit of misdirection that she pulls off. So what, what do you think? I know. I mean, you've said it all perfectly. I think for me, what I always found so beautiful at that ending with Miss Marple is she says, the reason I knew that the letters were a misdirection was because none of it was true. And if a woman had been writing poison pen letters, she would have known the town scandal and she would have gotten the gossip right. So the fact that she was writing these kind of totally random letters and gossip is actually something that Miss Marple uses a lot and thinks about a lot. And um, it's something that Agatha Christie often brings into the Marple stories is how how Miss Marple kind of understands town gossip. And uh, so I I love that ending. I think it's so great. 
But one thing I don't love about the book that we have already spoken a bit about is is the main romance of the story. Uh, and there are m- more than one romance, but the main romance of the story, which is the um, the narrator, Jerry Burton, uh, and a Megan Symington, or no, Megan, not Symington. Hunter. Hunter, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is the, the, the stepdaughter of Mr. Symington and the daughter of, of Mona Symington from a previous marriage. And she is portrayed as very young at the beginning of the book. I mean, she's 20, but she's kind of infantilized. She's, you know, skimming her knees when she's riding her bike and her stockings are falling down and she hasn't darned them properly. And she's, she comes across as just this very precocious kind of teen. Um, not even that precocious, actually, I would say. Precocious is not the right word. Um, and Jerry slowly falls in love with her and then takes her on the train to London and dresses her up and takes her dancing. And uh, when he sees this older-looking, beautiful version of this young girl, he suddenly realizes how in love with her he is. Um, and it, it just never worked for me. I find it, I find it um, a little bit icky and a little bit, um, yeah, I, I don't even know if I can find the right words, but it just, it never clicked in for me the way that Joanna, his sister Joanna falls in love with the town doctor, um, Owen Griffiths, and that romance really works for me. What yes, that's brilliant, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Because Jerry, um, uh, this is all fascinating. Yeah. Um, but um, going back slightly, because as you say, Jerry narrates the book, mm-hmm. and it's it's a weird gift of Agatha, one of her minor gifts. I think she's very good at the male voice, um, and j- having this outsider narrate, and the fact that Jerry, who's recovering from a, a flying accident, and that puts him in this unlikely setting, which instantly there's no mention of the war at all, is there? It's it's wartime setting, but there's no mention of the war at all. It's like a a, a kind of um, timeless, there's a timeless quality to it. Well, I was actually going to ask you if it was a war, if it was a war injury, or if he was simply a pilot. Because- yeah. I, funnily enough, I started thinking that mm. before we were, because it, it, that's not really made clear, is it? Um, and because her post-war village novels are incredibly good they're real little social documents about how the world has changed oh you no longer know who everybody is you used to call on mrs bright and mr blar and colonel mustard and um you everyone knew each other and after the war everything fragmented and you get refugees and you get and that is really, really an intriguing little bit of social history that she 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 moves with her times more than I think is recognised, Agatha. But this book, although it doesn't feel quite like something like Murder at the Vicarage, it feels not as not as hierarchical as that book. Um, nevertheless, there is a there is a kind of generic quality to it. But having him as the narrator, and he does at one point say. At that moment, I hated Limstock, mm, and it's, right. it's narrow-minded or it's gossiping women or something. Because I think Agatha is more Jerry than Villager. I know I keep saying village. It's a town, but it's a village. <laughs> um, Agatha never lived in a place like that. She grew up in Torquay, which is a seaside town, as we know. Um, she lived in London. She lived in. She never. She never lived in anywhere like that. But she uses it as the most superb 
microcosm and this wonderful way in which to, as Miss Marple says, you see human nature close up like under a microscope. So it's brilliant for her purposes. But she, but Jerry's brisk outsider voice is incredibly well done, I think, and incredibly useful and, and funny. It's funny. He's got a sort of ironic, you know, um, sort of overview, which is which is really good. But the and and his sister Joanna, who's this sophisticated London woman wearing her country tan makeup <laughs> from the equivalent of Estee Lauder, to, in order to look sort of weather beaten, and you know she still looks like she's walking down Bond Street. It's very nicely done. Um, and she falls for the local doctor because he sort of brings her up against reality, doesn't he? And they're very, very, very good, that scene, I think. Um, but poor, the, the Megan thing, I know what you mean. I do know what you mean. Mm. I do know what you mean. But wh- how I've always read it, because I like Jerry, I've always read it that everyone else infantilizes Megan. And like her mother sort of says, oh, we're not going to. Oh, we don't do parties for Megan. She's just a kid, you know. Um, and he sort of sees her that way and sees her as a, um, yeah, a bit like a protege. They sit and talk about Shakespeare together and he just enjoys her company. And then I find the moment when he realizes he's in love with her, I find that not patronizing. In some way, it's almost just like all the clouds of, all the mist has cleared. And, um, and the, the scene where the, the kind of quite possibly the original makeover scene when he takes her to London and dress, I I find that okay because she likes it too. She's up for it too. It's not like he's doing it to her and she's hating it. So I feel that makes it okay when he pulls her onto the train and says, "Oh God, I'd love to take you to London and dress you up," and and she says, "Oh, I wish you could." So does that make it? A bit less ghastly. <laughs> I, you know, I don't think it's written in a ghastly way. And I, I totally see your side of it as well. There's just, in reading it, I never felt the romance of it. No. And I, and I think I felt the romance between Owen and Joanna. And there's that, they have that tension, you know, where he's crossing the street to avoid her on the street when they're walking down, you know, uh, the high street and so on. And, and she's kind of saying, you can't, you can't avoid me. I'm going to cross over and say hello to you. And th- there's like a bit of banter, whereas with Jerry and Megan, it's, he, keeps, he keeps describing her as, as a dog. You know, she's got these big dog-like eyes and she's so earnest. And, and there's something about his continued talking about her as an animal. <laughs> That just that doesn't yeah. quite then fit into a romantic uh, kind of setting for me. You see that moment when he says, Joanna says, "Oh my God, you te- you can't take a girl to London and buy her clothes. You'll have to marry her." And he says, Do "You know, I, I I wouldn't mind." And she says, "Yeah, I know, I know. I've seen what was going on." And I find that I absolutely know what you're saying. Mm. For me, it doesn't read like that, but I do know what you're saying. Um, but I find everyone else is awful to me. He thinks he's kind of the person who's Megan's friend and saving her from her ghastly parents yeah. in this household where they don't care about her and everything. Um, and he's like a refuge. And then he he realizes it's something more. I, I've 
Yeah, I find it, I like it. <laughs> there are romances in Christie that I find, I think, what, what the hell? But that, no, I do like that. But I know what you mean. I do know what you mean. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's the great thing about books, right? We, as you say, we both just read it differently. And um, I actually like that Christie's work allows for that because I think so much of her work is quite straightforward in terms of the plot and it moves at a certain pace. And so that we can find things to disagree on within the text is actually quite nice. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 I do. I really do know what you mean. But for some reason, his the way he sees her and then sees her properly, I, 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 I buy it. I buy it. You buy it. All right. Yeah. I do. And I, I, I do. Um, I like how they talk about Shakespeare when she says, I've always wondered why Goneril and Regan were like that, which is so, it's so Agatha, because <laughs> Agatha always treated Shakespeare's characters as psychological studies, and so she never, never saw them as words on the page, you know, mm. they're like that because the play needs them to be like that. She would sort of, during the war, when she was living on her own in London, because um, her second husband, Max, was in North Africa, and she, she lived in this very modernist flat in, in London, as you know, of course. And she used to go off to Shakespeare with people like Robert Graves. And then she'd quiz people at dinner, like, but what was wrong with Ophelia? What was her mental disorder? All this sort of thing. And to me, it's very weird to look at Shakespeare like that. She's, you know, and it, it's, um, but it, I think it was a fashionable way of it. But it's also very Agatha because, like Poirot, when he says, what interests me is human nature. And that's what interests her. She's not interested in murder, I don't think. She's interested in motive. I think that's and, right. And, you know, famous lack of violence and all that kind of thing. Although there is a bit in The Moving Finger. I don't like that skewer. I know. Oh, awful. Um, so I'd, I'd love to talk very briefly about one of the characters from The Moving Finger, one of the the villagers, the townspeople, Mr. Pye, who is kind of a coded uh, gay man. He lives on his own and he brings in the Burtons to tour his beautiful home, which Jerry Burton hates because it's like a museum. But Joanna actually loves probably for the same reason. And um, I, I loved what you had said about him previously, which is kind of that he's this coded character, but he there's no judgment around him. Do you want to talk to that a bit? Yeah, no, it's 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 it's, it's a stunning sort of um, it's that sophistication that I've alluded to. You get the same thing in um, A Murder is Announced with the lesbian couple who live in Chipping Cleghorn. And again, everyone in the village knows, everyone, um, it's a bit like my grandmother's pub. There were two men who used to go in there and borrow her dresses. Nobody, it isn't even that nobody cared, nobody thought about it. It was just you, that acceptance of people as you find them, as long as they're, there is that sense of community and of as long as people play their part in it and don't um, frighten the horses, as the English say, then, you, you you know, nobody cares. And I think that is, that, that, that if you say judgment, it sort of implies there's something to judge. That's true. Um, but it doesn't even enter the, it doesn't enter the atmosphere. Mr. Pye is just 
there. He's just there. He's terribly well done. When he says he excited, the excitement in in his voice when he related how he brought his Italian bedstead home from Verona or something. You can sort of see him doing it, can't you? Going through customs and what. So very nice touches how that's all done, I think. Um, but it's it's part of that all-embracing thing that she had going on that um, that she would have been, I think, amazed if anyone had drawn attention to it. Mm, I think she would. It's, it's so interesting. Whereas uh, yeah, a writer whom I admire, like Ruth Rendell, who's very hot on psychology, but it's very out there, isn't it? This is very psychological. I'm going to be psychological here. And um, if you think of a book like Towards Zero, where the psychology of the murderer is, weird really seriously weird um committing a murder because they want to get someone else hanged for it i mean you know uh, but again it's just there and then the reader allows it to seep into them and wow you know but she never draws attention she is impersonal almost and she is um she doesn't doesn't she, she trusts the reader to um, feel the things she doesn't have to tell them to feel them. I agree. And I actually, it's so interesting you brought up A Murder is Announced and that lesbian couple because I find that scene where the one woman finds her partner who's been murdered to actually be one of her most moving scenes. It's so visceral. Um, it's, a, it's a really, really beautifully written, sad, sad scene. Um, yeah, and it stands out actually amongst amongst other scenes of the same kind of, you know, caliber. Yeah, I agree. It's it's beautifully done. Really, she's got this her gift for. I say in the book, it's like a bee going from flower to flower. She just knows where to go, knows where to go, knows what words to say. Never. So you, the reader, alight upon everything that. Is salient, and if you see in her writing notebook, she'll write things out in this really sketchy. Porus says this, Hastings says that, and and you think, oh yeah, that's the whole skeleton of the book there. So she sort of, and and with a scene like that when um, it, uh, Murgatroyd is murdered, and it, it just the, the you're drawn to all the salient words, and she says something like, "Whoever did this, I'll get them," and it's some. Um, because of this gift she's got for saying what you need, you feel the the appropriate emotions. You know, like you say, it's very moving. Yeah. There's um. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I was recently at a talk with the author Stuart Turton, uh, who wrote oh, yeah. the the Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. And he said something that resonated so much, was, which was that I couldn't write an Agatha Christie because she's written all of them. Huh. Um, and I just, it was an explanation of how he'd actually written that book. Um, and I just, I love, I love that. And it, it speaks to your kind of the bee. You know, she just, every single thing she could hit, she just hit it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's, I thought that was a great uh, quote. It is. It is. Gosh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it sums up that almost translucent, you know, power that she's got, and the the the, the and how and and a respect for how 
say she's not the greatest writer ever. She's not Tolstoy, but the, the, there's no one who does what she does, and no one who I think even knows how to try really. No, she's it's she so is com- it's complete. She, she's complete. I think her universe is yes. complete. Her work is complete, and no one else can really penetrate that. That's it. That's absolutely right. Yeah. No. Yeah. So here's another question about the book that I've I've always yeah. tried to work out. Why does Jerry get involved in this case? <laughs> he is so this is meant to be therapeutic. I know, and that is what's because you know that whole scene at the beginning where the doctor says, "Go to the country, get involved in the local scandal," and he takes it to such a degree that he's sitting with the detectives, going, "Can you tell fill me in about what's going on in the case?" And they just say, "Sure, no problem." Like he's just this yeah. guy that they'll fill in about what's going on with a murder case in their town. I find it so bizarre, but it works. I, you know, I never really questioned it um, until more recently when I was rereading it. But it is strange. Well, I think uh, her lack of po- what we would call police procedural etiquette is yeah. quite jaw-dropping, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, but that is quite. But if you read modern detective fiction, everything's DNA and everything, blah right. blah blah, and everyone. But, and she, you know, she'd probably confuse a constable with a sergeant and nobody cares no. nobody cares that you know the chief constable always knows the local gentry and goes in and has a whiskey and says look here man it, it wasn't you that did in this young creature well you, you know i mean it's it's all but that's fine and yes it is um a bit extraordinary how the inspector takes him into his confidence but um why did he get involved um, but it is like the do- I find that quite convincing again I seem to be being very forgiving <laughs> but when <laughs> when the doctor says convalesce in the country get involved in local scandals and he thinks that's what I think that's part of the misdirection he thinks he's got a, ooh, a really juicy local scandal here we've got a one of these um, country women is is going around sending poison pen letters, um, and that's quite. And then he he does find it unpleasant, but it, and he he gradually finds it more unpleasant. But then it becomes something else. So he hasn't. He's kind of been lured in by the misdirection of the anonymous letters. I suppose is how I would see it. Okay, and I ag- I agree with you. I actually think it's very convincing. Yeah. Um, I have no issue with it in the in the course of the book but it is something when you consider it that you go that is quite strange (laughs) that this man has just waltzed into this town and is like being taken into the confidences of you know the the police there it's it's hilarious in a way and i i i met pd james for my biography um which was a a great pleasure because i i love pd james's book but she did she she was incredibly respectful of Agatha. She said a couple of things that were really helpful to me. But she did at one point. She deconstructed the body in the library in a very, very funny way. Um, you know, they're going to dye the hair on it. No one's going to take any notice that none of the other body hair on her body is a completely different color. And why didn't they just kill the old man and blah, 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 blah. And it was, it was you know, she said, but we accept it because this is Christie's artistic construct we accepted and uh, you know that that um when you're in it you buy it i find 
and, and you find. I, um, I know there are going to be people who don't, but it's sufficiently artistically con- convincing, I think, on the whole. I, I, um, I agree. I agree. And I think one of the, as I was kind of rereading the biography as well, one of the things I was struck by was in Jerry, there is kind of that um, that tension that is also in Agatha's life, which is kind of the everyday and the artistic. And he seems to find some artistic pleasure in taking part in this police case that he really has no stake in for the most part until the very end. Um, and And she similarly kind of has this part of her that is happy to be the housewife and the wife and the domestic person. Uh, And then she has this artistic side of her that's writing these incredible, very detailed books and and writing them Mm -hmm. at such an extraordinary rate. I mean, I don't think we often consider how much she was writing. Um, Basically, between... It's unbelievable. It is. Between 1920 and 1975, when she died, uh, she basically wrote at least one, if not more, books per year. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's argue, argue. Yeah. No, yeah. She was, um, she died in January 76. 76. And yeah. she, yeah. And then when she, I think, I think it's arguable that the year that she wrote this book is her peak, peak creative mm. year because she also wrote The Body and the Library, Towards Zero, and The Great Five Little Pigs. And Towards Zero is, in fact, they're all great. Yeah. I mean, they really are. Um, I do. I think Five Little Pigs is probably her best all round, and I think this one is her most supremely accomplished, <laughs> possibly her most enjoyable. I think it's the one I find the most enjoyable. This one. When you say accomplished, when you say accomplished, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's very relaxed. I think it's very relaxed, and. I think the world that she draws with her own relaxation, although I'm sure she worked very hard for the six weeks or whatever it took to write it, unbelievable. Um, she, it's unbelievably, as I say, detailed. And that poor woman who's madly in love with the solicitor, Amy Griffith, the doctor's sister, coming up to everyone's front door, you know, running her girl guides and everything, and she's burning for this local solicitor and sends one anonymous letter to the, the beautiful governess. It's, it's you know, you abs- I absolutely believe all that. Absolutely believe all that. I've met those people or versions of them. and But there's an ease about it that I think is, to, the, to me, this book feels the most, it, it, it's, she's, she's really at ease with it, I think. Um, she she must have known the plot twist was pretty great. I just feel it coheres in a leaving side. We'll, we'll we'll put Megan and Jerry in the caveat box, <laughs> but given that I buy that, I'm going to give her that one. Mm. Then I feel it is. Um, she, you know, she dedicated it to two of her husband's friends, Sydney and Mary Smith. Sydney Smith was a um, he worked at the British Museum and he wrote her a, a wonderful letter saying, you know, you, um, your social backgrounds are, 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 are really something, you know, wow. they're, they're better than some of the more serious novelists. You're, you're doing something different here and it's, it's, um, you're pulling it off. 
And that was the, the level of person who sort of got what she was doing and that her simplicity, which when I was growing up, people were regarding as simplistic, mm. is actually harder to achieve than complexity. You know, it's like, you know, I wrote a long book because I didn't have time to write a short book. Her books, the distillation of those books, it's jaw-dropping. Most writers would take three times as many words to get in what she does, I think. I, I completely agree with you. And, I, you know, we, we spoke about this previously, but her her achieving that simplicity is is very hard to do as a writer and when you have these kind of surface gestures and small visuals that somehow create a picture that is so recognizable for people it's such an incredible skill and and for me also this book has a really outstanding sense of place in it and as you say she never lived in a town or we won't call it a village like Limstock but her ability to conjure this place, full, again, fully formed, is it, it makes the book what it is because then you believe all the people's actions because of the space that they live in. And, and you do the same thing very much in, in the autobiography, talking particularly about Ashfield, um, her childhood home in Torquay. Well, thank you. I mean, that's because uh, Ashfield no longer exists. Yeah. But you can walk up that hill. It's a really steep hill. Um, on the outskirts of talking, you sort of try and reconjure it to life, and it's it's um, things like that are the the really interesting, almost the most interesting parts of writing biography is is going to the places where people were and imagining them there. It's a very exciting and thing to do, I think. And I think you're absolutely right about this book. I think there's a rooted sort of quality to it. I don't know how she knew these places so well. Um, but it, it, uh, you, you've mentioned this, Rebecca, you know, that sort of it, with Poirot, that's because Poirot is a cosmopolitan and tends to inhabit more, you know, the, the, the scenarios and, and places that don't, that don't have the, the marple quality of a, a lived, you know, marple is rooted. There's no, even though Limstock is not her home, she is, she is rooted. She, she's, She's an outsider like him, but we, you know, she she has a world, and that. Um, so those books do have a different, they do have a different quality. And quite often, you would see in her notebooks that she would. I mean, um, Death on the Nile that was originally a marvel um, in a different form, and Cat Among the Pigeons was originally a marvel. And that, but I think they have a feel that 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 is not as there's there's not that microcosm. There's not there's not that sense of the social hierarchies that have been unchanging for years. And when they do change, it's like seismic and all that sort of thing. The Smartle is a really good vehicle for, for conveying that, that it's a, it's an English cliche, but it's also true. You know, it, it's, it's English villages. They are like that. They are like that. I've, I did not know that about Cat Among the Pigeons and um, mm. and Death on the Nile, and that is so fascinating. And I think one of the reasons the marples can be so rooted in place is that Poirot's personality is so enormous that it really drives so much of the plot, in fact, and so much of his reasoning mm. and, and uh, kind of the atmosphere of the book is really rooted in him. 
And I don't find that with the marples. And the fact that you kind of have this marple book where she is in, I don't know how many words of this book, she's really not very present, but her her impact is so enormous. Um, and even at the very end of the book, you know, Mrs. Dane Calthorpe, who has brought her friend Jane Marple in, says, you know, well, I had to bring in an expert. And Jerry still has no idea who she's talking about. You mm-hmm. know, she has to say it was it was Mrs. Marple. It was Jane, Miss Marple. Um, yeah. So she she has that ability to because she is of a place and of a time to kind of be yeah. in the background of it, I think. Yes, it's it, her camouflage is is total. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And he is. Yes. As you say, he is his. He 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 has to be, um, and she's very good on that. Actually, how Poirot is an outsider. She's. I mean, Agatha was an upper middle class English woman born into the late Victorian era, and you can't do anything about the time and place and class into which you were, particularly class in England. We know that. Um, you can't do anything about that, and there are certain things that proceed from that that we might wish away, you know. But she but then she'll turn the tables on us and she will be very knowing about, you know, Poirot is a really good vehicle for mocking English snobbery, I find. Absolutely. You know, he'll you know, if someone's if some twit of a colonel is being particularly mulish in the face of Poirot, he'll suddenly talk about his friend, you know, the Duke of Blar or something like that and watch the guy melt mm. and know that the guy will melt. Yeah. And that, that it, it, she's very good at that, I think. Very good at using Poirot to mock English uh, idiocy, I find. My favourite trick that he pulls is that he becomes more foreign. He yes, often exactly. really amps up the accent and really yes. his his gestures become, he calls them, you know, overly foreign as a way to kind of make the person feel so superior that they become at ease with him. And that, for, I always laugh because she does it so perfectly and he is so accepting of it. He just, he knows all the little tricks and he just uses them to his, his own advantage and it's so brilliant. Yes, it, it really is. Yes, he's very, um, he's, I mean, I'm not going to say he's a person in the sense, you know, when they portray him on the screen and they give him a backstory and they give him a woman he was in love with or he was a priest or something. And I think, oh, come on, guys. He's meant to be like a, uh, he, he's not a he's not a Rembrandt. He's a he's a beautiful sort of, as I said, a line drawing, a wonderful. I think he's he's very he's alone among detectives. It seems to me, and that he's the the golden age detectives. They 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 are they are big on backstory, aren't they? Like whimsy and and if you well, Peter James isn't golden age, but she is in a sense. Dalgleish, you know, he's a poet or blah blah blah. They're all too good to be detectives. They're all like ideal men who happen to be detectives. And Poirot is pure detective. He's pure detective. And that's very much like her attitude to the genre, I think. She never felt the need, as Dorothy Sayers did, to show that she was sort of too good for the genre. I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but there's no doubt about it. Dorothy L. Sayers they're always about their Oxford University or their, you know, they show a a massive knowledge that is extraneous to the plot. And that has its own appeal. But Agatha never felt the need to do that. She defines the genre, but she also sort of submits to the genre, I find, while at the same time 
doing the craziest, most amazing conceptual things with what a solution is, you know. It's all of them. Or it's a suicide, or it's a policeman, or it's a child. It's like conceptual. But it's still, she's still obeying in some way the, 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 the genre, in a way that I don't feel the others do. And that is part of her greatness, I think, that she's, 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 it's, it's what we were talking about, the, the simplicity, the pure geometry of it. Yeah. And when you give yourself limitations like that, the creative creativity you have within the limitations becomes endless. And I think that's what she is really able to achieve. She allows herself to have those limitations such that she can do whatever she wants within them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Because if you turn the geometry the other way around, there's a massive stuff. I mean, if you think about murder on the Orient Express, there's something massive there. It's like legal justice has let these people down. Do they have the right to take justice into their own hands? It's, it's, it's a big, you know, it's like a biblical question. Um, and again, because of the size of it and the, the fundamental um, weight and truth of it, we, that solution is, is not just famously tricky, it's famously satisfying. <laughs> yeah. You know. And, and I think also, um, as we've spoken about before, she doesn't have judgment for the people mm. who have carried it out. And I find quite often she doesn't have a very negative judgment, even for the villains of her books. They often have these kind of psychological urges or needs or something. I mean, often it's money or it's whatever, but they want the money for some particular reason. Um, it's never, it's often not just, I'm just greedy. Um, she, she does kind of seem to understand motive in a way that humanizes everybody. Yes, that's true. That's true because what's so great about Miss Marple, and I think, again, this is very Agatha, is, I mean, Agatha, she, she never portrays, well, possibly once or twice, possibly endless nights. She doesn't portray murder, pleasure for, the pleasure of killing. It's expediency. It's, it is usually money really, um, which I think is probably true. Um, uh, and there are a couple of books where someone gets pleasure out of the power of killing, but generally it's for a recognizable reason. Um, and in a way, I think possibly this one is, is, is the, the exemplar for what, what, what I call in my book English murder. Um, by which I mean, it's the George Orwell essay about the the, the the supreme age of English murder. I mean, it's just ironic, but um, when you had these big cases like Crippen and, you know, Florence Bravo and all these that were huge sensations at the Old Bailey and um, with just human nature writ large, if you like. And what what the essence of them is is respectability, really, I think. Is that you are, and she actually spells this out in the moving finger. She says, Mr. Symington wanted everything. He wanted his house, he wanted his children, he wanted his position, and he wanted Elsie, i.e., the governess. And he wanted, he wanted respectability. He wanted respectability. He wanted the facade to be maintained. So you remove the element that's, uh, you know, wrecking the dream, i.e., wifey and then you 
re, you know, reconfigure the respectable facade. And that's very like Dr. Crippen. That's kind of what he did. Got rid of the wife, back to respectable. And um, that tension, because well, some murder is, is like that, um, a lot isn't. But that tension between the facade and the, the, the ultimate act of desecration, that tension is, uh, is at the heart of Christie, really, I think. And at the heart, again, part of the satisfaction. Because murder that's pure mayhem is a, is a completely different thing and it can be brilliantly done and what have you in literature. But, but here, it's, um, it, 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 you have to have that sense of disruption within a society that then will be restored and what have you. I, I agree. And and I think not so much in the Marples, but one of the ways she also handles it with the Poirots is that he has that great line, I don't approve of murder, which is that even That's when right. yeah. some things happened where maybe other people would say, OK, I'll just let them get away with it or or I won't say anything. He he always has this this need to see the punishment through because of that particular fact about himself. Um, so she she often wraps it up nicely with that as well. Yeah, that's such a good line. It's a great it's, line. Um, he, 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 you know, he's he is. They are they are moral forces, and of course, again, a more modern sensibility suggests more ambivalence. More, and he does. He does, as you said before. He has sympathies for the for the criminal in Death on the Nile. He has real sympathy. He has sympathy for the person who might be the criminal in Third Cyprus. Um, he, he, you know, but he says it's dangerous because it's the, the, where this is done so brilliantly is in um, One Two Buckle My Shoe, actually, where the, the killer is the absolute zenith of respectability and says to Poirot, the, the public life needs me. And he says, no, you thought you were more important than four other people. It's 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 no good. It's dangerous. It's good. It's it's well done. I think. I agree. It's very I telling. I agree. And and in terms of kind of a a more modern reading of Christie, how do you think she's currently being received? And you know, is it at odds with the way she was writing? And how, like, how as modern readers should we be looking at her work and kind of? integrating perhaps the parts we don't agree with as much with these plots mm. and these characters that we that at least for myself I I find them so dear and so important to my life. Yeah, I mean there are things that pull one up. No doubt about it. There are these flashes of anti-semitism, flashes of um potentially xenophobia. It's um they are flashes. Uh, I'm not even going to begin to start to defend them. Uh, I think it's a very slippery slope that some people think is worth going down to view, to read, to, to perceive art through the prism of the contemporary rather than from seeing it from the point of view of when it was written, when it was conceived. <clears throat> I think it's very, very dangerous myself because I don't think there'll be much left if we go down that path. Um, I suppose I think you have to be um, bigger than she was when she wrote those little things that we would wish away. 
I don't think she's guilty of, I certainly don't think she's guilty of sexism or crimes against her. You know, her women are impressive. Her women are impressive. Um, and I think if you read her other books, her books under another name, her Mary Westmacott, uh, the is it six novels, nothing to do with detective fiction. I love them. I think they're great. And there you will see the, the true broadness of her mind. You will see uh, that she embraces the whole of humanity in a, in a completely questing, again, that, that lack of judgment really comes into play. So um, that's my view. Mm. Um, I'm interested in what you think. Well, it's such a difficult question because, as you say, I, I think it's very difficult to read anachronistically and try to say they should have written this or they should have written that. At the same time, for me, it's more of a question of access. You know, who gets to read Christie's and feel comfortable and safe and enjoy them? Um, and um, it's a different experience, I think, to read those books uh, if you're not a white person, you know, because there are elements that kind of just pop out at you all of a sudden and you go like, "Woo, that was unnecessarily cruel. <laughs> came from nowhere. Um, and And I think that can be... Um, can make people not want to kind of embrace the work overall because they're not sure that they can kind of engage with all of it or who it's really written for in a sense. Um, at the same time, I think I haven't stopped reading her work. You know, mm -hmm. I, I still really love her work and I, m more so than me putting the books down, what it's made me do is is look into who she was be critical of writing and you know I think learning to be critical of literature in general is a very important skill and you shouldn't read anything and not be critical of it so I think it's okay to read something be critical and still say but I loved it um and that it's unfortunately just a dichotomy that I think we have to live with because the books mm -hmm. are there they exist her body of work exists the characters are well, well worth, I think, putting up with some of the, as you say, these flash comments, um, particularly Poirot and Marple for me, because I think they're actually socially really fascinating characters. You know, one is a, a celibate Belgian refugee, dandified celibate Belgian refugee. The other is an elderly woman who no one puts any stock in. Um, she, she does deal with issues like real social issues, um, but she does it in a kind of non-ideological way, which is something that you talk about in the biography, that she doesn't really subscribe to ideologies in any real way. Um, and I, I wonder if that's why she loves mystery so much, because she kind of sees the world as an open place where things can happen like this. I don't know if that resonates. It kind of does, actually. kind of does. It's, it's a new idea to me. Um, but I think I think it is part of the same thing. Yeah, I do. Um, I think this. I think this question, which I mean, you know, when I was crazy about her, and so we're talking late twentieth century now. Those things, some of those things, pulled me up. I know we're now very alert to it, but they, they, you know, they quite possibly pulled a few people up at the time. They're just. But I think we have to regard them 
this is not for me to say. Other people may feel differently. Um, but you, you, they're, they're like the excrescences that are like the, the, but the, but the, the, the basic, her basic attitudes to people are, 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 are worth learning from, I think, because I think she is a true sophisticate. You read a book like The Hollow or something with its non-judgmentalism about a, a, a love affair and, you read a, you read books like A Caribbean Mystery where Miss Marple sort of laughs silently at her um, novelist nephew who writes books about people, you know, doing the most appalling, decadent things. And yeah, actually she says dirt, like dirty, a, dirty girls with unwashed hair. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And he doesn't have the first clue about people really. And it, it's and 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 Miss Marple is completely unshockable about people. She's but she's compassionate. Mm. She's compassionate. She she expects the worst and hopes for the best sort of thing. I think I think I think she's wise, Agatha. She might occasionally say things that are by our standards silly, offensive, you know, we wish she hadn't. But the 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 ninety nine percent or ninety five percent whatever is 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 wise and there's that you you can you can learn from her I think there's a, there's a there's a depth of knowledge a depth of understanding that I think um, you know and I think people are still responding to that in the, in their different ways and I mean she is read all around the world it's not just you know, I'm sitting in England in a relatively Christy sort of, but but she's she's read everywhere. She's read everywhere. So you know, I've met Indian people who adore her. I've met it. It's it, so you know, she's she's still here, and I'm I'm hearing from people a generation you, you know younger than you who are who are sort of falling in love with her again. And it's it's um there must be some humanity and some. And, and speaking to our love of stories and our love of fairy tales and our love of resolution and our love of morality and our love of order and the restoration of order and all those things, we seem there's something that there's some hungriness that she seems to fulfill, I find. I think that's exactly right. And um, I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up because it really distills why... I still read her, why I think people should continue to read her, why I hope they will read The Moving Finger uh, and and enjoy this episode. And I just want to thank you so much for, for being on the podcast and, and joining us tonight. And it's been such an incredible experience to get to chat with you. And I, I hope we can do it again sometime. I would love that. I've really enjoyed it, Rebecca. Thank you so, so much for having me. Thank you so much, Laura. Good night. Thank you to our producer, Kate Crischel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Tea and Murder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. We hope you're joining us for the book club. The next time will be Evil Under the Sun. You can rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookseller, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next week's book can be found in the episode notes. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.